Today, we see a lot of these networks have become extremely fragmented and it has really hurt our society. There has never been a society across the globe where everything was singular in terms of the family. So it is very hard to fathom that. And it's very hard for other, um, other regions outside the U.S. to understand how we go about our lives without having a system of community around families and children specifically. Hello everyone, welcome to this edition of Stormcast. I'm your host, Armstrong Williams. Wow, where do I start? It just seems like the last few weeks, it's been nothing but terror. Whether the pipe bombs with political leaders and celebrities, um, the, just the mass shooting at the Pittsburgh um, synagogue, the family shot in a parking lot um, where they clearly use racial language as far as what their motive was. And you know, obviously, um, so many of us spend our time talking about prisons, reform, crime. But I want to ask different kind of questions today, and I'll strong cast with our guest, Amisha Cross, who's the director of state policy for the Pretrial Institute, and John Kufus, who's the National Director of Reentry Initiatives on the Right on Crime and Safe Streets, Second Chances. You know, you know let me start with you, um, Amisha. This is what I need help with. When people, when you hear about these massacres, what are the first things that people whisper? Is he black? And, and I say to myself, why does that matter? What matters is that innocent people have just lost their lives. And then I asked the question to someone why it matters. And someone said, well, if, I just hope it is not somebody black because my emotions are less involved if they're white and the victims are white. And I asked myself, that is absolutely insane. It is crazy. And so we are motivated depending on who the victims are and who commits the crimes? What does that have to do with the crime and the fact that people have lost their lives? Shouldn't we care about the loss of humanity? What, what have we come, what does it say when you hear those kind of comments? It shows that we're in a very dangerous place in our culture, um, a place that I think that a lot of us would not like to admit that we have reached. But beyond that, it shows a, a deeper feeling of there being a unity around people who are considered to be part of your in-group. Um, historically, folks have always been more akin to feel passion and be emboldened to protect people who look like them than they are people who don't. And I think that in our nation, um, there's an understanding of that when it comes to racial issues, particularly with the history of blacks and whites in America, but not as much with the history of um, blacks being the exact same way um, when it comes to whites who are extremely affected, when it comes to massacres that don't necessarily involve minorities. Um, the majority of black people, sadly, um, when polled about this, don't really show the same amount of care and concern as there would be if the victims were black or if the assailant was actually black. And whites and Jews on the other end, do they have that same propensity as blacks when the victims are not Jewish or white? Polling shows that they do, that this goes both directions. Do they? I don't, I don't, I just, I don't understand it. People believe the same. You don't die differently because you're black or Jewish. You're not shot differently because you're black, Jewish or white. 
Bullets know no race. It knows no gender. And, and until we get to a point where I'm just as affected, it doesn't matter who it is. I was just as affected by the synagogue as I was at the church where my cousin was killed in Charleston. What happened in Sugarland in Texas with the massacre at the church. But when we start breaking it down, how we feel according to race and the color of the victims and who committed crime, that is a very dangerous tra trail that we find ourselves on in this country. I'd agree. You know, I think that unfortunately, you know, there's predispositions when when a shooting happens. People want to know, as you mentioned, you know, what's the what's the race of the shooter? What's the race of the victim? As if that's somehow going to offer insight into into the lack of humanity around it. You know, those of us that that were old enough to remember the the Oklahoma City bombing when it when it happened, right? The first thing uh, I remember as a kid when when the the bombing happened was. Oh, which Muslim did this, right? And then all, all of a sudden, uh, people realized it was Timothy McVeigh, uh, part of a militia and, you know, a national terrorist, right? And, and you know what? You make a very good point. This is where I was going next. Next, you make a very excellent point. People feel they can be more outraged if they're Muslims. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Not somebody who happens to be an American. As if your emotions change depending on which uh, religious... Um, group, an individual, commit the crime. Well, I think it's because it's an us versus them mentality that far too many people have in this country today uh, and have had for some time now, right? Is that you're, is that if you're not completely with me, you're 100% against me and anyone who looks like you is the same. And that's the wrong way to approach these issues. That's the wrong way to look. But unfortunately, I think that those divides are growing bigger in certain segments of, uh, of the country. And I would also argue there's a gross misunderstanding of culture outside of our own. It makes it a lot easier to outgroup um, those who believe in or are part of the Muslim faith than it is those who are Christians, or to even believe for many people that um, there is a such thing as domestic terrorism, that we could grow homegrown um, individuals who possess that level of hate. It's a lot easier for folks to swallow that this happens in places that are against the United States and against our values. So then why is there less rage when you see the black-on-black -black crime in Chicago. Those are lives. They have just as much value, value to God as anybody else. Why does that get less attention? So I'm a native Chicagoan, so that, that, that hits pretty hard. Um, and I will say, as someone who's from the South Side, um, in Chicago, it is not something that is not seen as less outrageous in the city itself. Um, there is a great extent of mass media that would like to not pay attention to the folks who are on the ground protesting, to the folks who are on the ground trying to solve these issues within the communities every day. It's just something that doesn't necessarily get picked up. And that, to me, has always been frustrating. Um, as a Chicagoan, one of the things that um, also is problematic is that, um, as you're well aware, our city government was not necessarily the most advantageous in helping to reduce the violence, particularly in the black communities that are hit the hardest. When it comes to people being hurt, people having feeling towards it, people who live in those communities care. I think it is very hard for there to be um, that same amount of care and concern for folks who literally live in the same city. Um, Chicago is a huge city. It takes the average person 30 to 40 minutes to get to the north side. If you are not someone who lives in the south or west sides, chances are you have never seen the level of gun and gang violence that exists on the other side of that city. They do not have the same bit of care and concern because their kids, their grandmothers, they aren't going through that violence every day. Yeah, I think some folks uh, outside the urban areas see it as business as usual, which again is wrong. And in the criminal justice space, I think we saw a little bit of that with the opioid epidemic, right? When it was crack in, infecting, uh, in, infecting urban communities, the 
the stance was just lock people up, right? When it became an opioid issue hitting the suburban communities, it was then a medical issue and an issue that needed to, to be rectified through treatment and diversion courts. Um, so I think that we start to see that, uh, you know, it, it, there's almost a business, there's almost a perception that it's business as usual in urban centers that this sort of thing goes on and it doesn't touch me or, or someone in, in middle America. Now, when you, when you think about it from the, and I use the, I use opioid, the opioid issue uh, a lot from New Jersey, from South Jersey, we're being crippled by, by the opioid epidemic. But candidly, uh, no one really seemed to care for, uh, until Governor Christie stepped up and said, this is, this is an epidemic. And he was one of the first. And even then, people are like, isn't that a problem for other people? So I think as these problems start to, start to become more national, I think that groups that may have never been exposed to the issue become exposed to the issue and hopefully become exposed to the solution. And there's also an economic condition associated with the level of care and concern people have writ large. Um, a lot of the conversation around the opioid crisis, for instance, um, people have been talking about race and how, again, the crack epidemic happened in majority minority communities. Opioids are largely affecting people who are non-minorities. But I would argue that the bigger issue is that the crack epidemic really took flight in extremely impoverished communities. Um, in most situations, it's very hard to get the level of care and concern um, for those communities as it is communities that people see as being more vital parts of society. And I think, again, that shows a crisis in the American psyche more than anything else. You know, I want to come back um, to the theme. And, and, I, and I love the fact that you take the conversation in areas that needs to be discussed in this national media platform. So you take police officers who kill innocent citizens. Depending on if the cop is white and the victim is black, you would assume those are the only people who are victims to police killings. But if the police officer is black and the victim is black, or if the victim is white, it doesn't get the same press. Or if the victim is white, killing somebody white, it doesn't get the same press. I'm getting to a deeper point. Are we manipulated and made to feel this way because of the media? And sometimes we don't think deeply enough the impact that media has on our feelings, on our thoughts, and how we should feel about different crimes and how people commit them, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's what happened at the Jewish synagogue, whether it's what happened at the Charleston Church. What role does media and psych the psychology of the media play in the minds of people? We don't realize that we become robot and we only care when certain things trigger us to care. Absolutely. Um, I think that that's a great question. Media plays a major role. In the majority of cases, cases, people's reactions come from what they have seen or what they have heard. Um, these are accounts that they have whittled down through various journalists, and today not even journalists, more so um, commentators than anything else, and social media. And people develop their ideas of what actually happened on the scene, who should be blamed, um, and carry on in that fashion. What we know, factually, is that police officers who are black and police officers who are white um, actually end up shooting victims at the exact same rates. And in the majority of cases, and, and again, this is something that is not reported on, my father's a police officer. My father runs a narcotics unit. And at the end of the day, yes, he has shot black men. He has shot white men. Um, he has not come under fire. And I mean, he's my dad, so I'm hoping this doesn't happen. But the, the case does not look the same when you are somebody who is minority who is put in those exact same extremely dangerous positions and have to make, in many cases, fast, fast actions with the information that you have as it is when a white officer has to make those exact same snap decisions. But what kind of pressure does that mentality and that thinking 
place on a white police officer because of his race. Is that not a form of racism and a, a different bar? Listen, nobody should be shooting and killing, mm -hmm. but obviously you know the penalty and the consequences are be, gonna be more draconian for someone else. And so does that say that you pull back and sometimes you blink in the moment of crime when you know you're legitimate and you may get harmed and you may not go into your family? How does that play in the psychic of law enforcement, John? Yeah, I think it, I think it, it has to, right? Yeah, it has to. Because I, I, I think, and going back to your first point, I think the media in many ways selects what's important for us, right? They, no, so like, who is important? Well put. Right, selects what I think. Right, they're going to select what we what we take in. Right, the intake point. Um, you know, and I think that right when you have uh, uh, when you have, and this is this issue has happened for years. Right, I spent the first ten years of my career as a criminal defense lawyer. You know, if you had a certain color defendant with a certain color victim in a certain type of jury you already knew you had much bigger problems because you weren't going to get a fair shake, right? So this permeates every aspect of the criminal justice system. You know, with police officers, I... So you're just admitting that even in the courts, jury selection is important and race plays a role. Oh, sure. Uh, sure. I mean, uh, you know, the, you know, unfortunately, you know, juries are manipulated far too often uh, to, 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 cater to certain demographics rather than to cater to the facts of the case. Um, you know, if you have a, I had the, the, the privilege of trying cases in urban and rural and suburban counties. And each time you picked a jury, the actual complexion of the jury looked different. The, uh, what's important to that jury looked different. Their political leanings are going to be different and their trust of the police is going to be different, right? And uh, no, every trial lawyer has selected a jury to, to maximize those benefits, you know, within the constitutional bounds of what's permitted. Uh, but we're reading more about uh, both prosecutors and defense lawyers who are manipulating juries, using peremptory uh, challenges, right, to place an all-white jury in there or an all or an all-black jury in there. And I think that fact alone tells you how important at least the legal community thinks of race in these issues. But you know, the problem with that thinking and when that plays into the legal system and law enforcement and crime, it can also have a backlash. It can backfire. And you should talk about that. It, it absolutely can. So in, in these cases that are, I, I would say, coded by color, it becomes a lot more difficult because um, there is a history in many cases, particularly in the African-American community, where you have um, people who will generally disregard facts of cases specifically. Um, and vote on emotion um, in terms of how what they support and what things they actually think are a part of the narrative and completely ignore others that are simply facts of the case. And we've seen that happen. Um, the Laquan McDonald case that just got um, that just came down in Chicago, it had one black juror. Um, the entire rest of the jury pool was not black. And a lot of people in the community were upset. They were chosen that way for a reason. The belief was that the black community across the city had been tainted so much against this man, a lot based on the um, based on the media coverage, the consistent media coverage, a lot of the student and random person on the street journalism. And the idea was the officer would not get a fair shake if the jury was a composition other than the one that they chose. Did that play out that way? Well, um, he was still found guilty. However, I do believe that um, the charges would have been a lot higher and he might not have been able to get the, um, the fair trial that he deserved um, during that process if the jury had had a different composition. So, so I think the question that 
given how flawed the system is and how flawed we are and how much of how we react and what we based on our judgment really has nothing to do with fact. It has to do with conditioning. What is the prognosis? You cannot change this. I don't even know if it can get better. And who ultimately pays the price for these flaws? Yeah, I, I think, you know, cabining into the jury issue for a second, right? I think it's about including more people in jury service. And uh, everybody finds every reason to get out of it. But I'll give you an example. You know, because of, uh, despite the fact I tried many cases, you know, and I, I do reentry work around the country, I've been to prison, so I'll never sit on a jury again, right? So I, my perspective is completely removed from the jury process. So when you think of defendants, particularly defendants of color, right, uh, they're not getting a jury of their peers. Those police officers, they're not putting police officers on juries either. So they're not getting a jury of their peers. So a jury of your peers really is, is a misnomer because it's really a, a very narrow lane of the people both eligible to serve for jury duty and who have the time and as the joke goes, couldn't think of an excuse to get out of it. So obviously we talk about prison reform, but is there any way, because society has been volatile since the beginning. I mean, crime has been rampant. I mean, when you think about the days of the wild, wild west and the wide herbs and, and when you think about that, the only thing that's changed now is technology. You can do it in more of a massive way. Uh, do you think in some way that the media and video games encourage people that when their laws, lives are lost, they have no soul, they have no purpose and no meaning, that they see this as a way of being relevant and being remembered in history? Do you think in their own psychology, when you cannot navigate moral re reality of any kind of value system and understanding the value of life and the worth of human beings, that sometimes your reality could be that, you know, I'm, I'm born to kill. I think so, and I think that uh, we also have a generation who uh, probably is very good at frustration tolerance, right? We have a generation raised with uh, participation trophies. We have a generation raised uh, in, in, a, in, in what I'd call political correctness gone uh, run amuck, uh, uh, a, a society where everything you do is on social media, uh, and a society where uh, you have folks who, in the old days, I mean, and again, I'm 41 years old, so I'm not that old, but even when I was in school, if you were bullied, you settled it with the bully and you went on with your day, right? And, and the school, your mom got called and the bully's mom got called and it, and it got handled. Um, now, if you were to even say anything to the person bullying you, you might be suspended, put into an individualized education plan and, and God knows what else. So I think that there is no, there, there, we have a generation where frustration tolerance is not prioritized and we have a generation where, uh, candidly, that that hasn't endured some of the problems of prior generations. And the lack of families in these generations, I think, also create a huge role. You have mothers working two and three jobs, put food on the tables, fathers in prison, particularly in urban communities, uh, disproportionately so. And you have a breakdown internally at that level. I would agree with that. Um, it, from, from the perspective of being a native Chicagoan, um, I think a lot of this is nature versus nurture. At the end of the day, if you see young children and everything that they see in their communities is violent, is drug sales on the corner, is broken homes, is no one graduated from high school, there's a perpetuation that comes because most young people model after exactly what they see. I have nothing against the moms who have to do what they have to do to put food on the table when they're working those two and three jobs. But recognition is somebody is raising those kids and it's not that parent. It's usually the streets. 
So I think that we first have to um, segment between what's happening in a lot of our urban centers and in some of our rural areas as well um, versus what's happening in these mass shooting situations. With the majority of those that we've seen across this country, there has been a, or at least talk, of a mental health component. Um, typically, these folks are from two-parent households. These are folks who have parents who, by and large, um, are in a much better situation, situ situation than there are those who are in the urban communities. And they are still going out and creating these, uh, these heinous crimes. And they're still going out and um, really disrupting society. So I think that there are two things at play here. Mass shootings are still episodic. The gun and gang violence that's happening in urban centers is not. This is a daily rotating event. And they have very different answers and very different core reasons as to why they're occurring. Tell us about um, the, uh, the Pretrial Institute. So the Pretrial Justice Institute has been around for 45 years and um, work um, primarily in jails and prisons, um, specifically trying to reduce arrests, reduce incarceration numbers, um, as well as work with state legislative bodies on, um, on plans to end the process of money bail. Um, specifically looking at the fact that indigent populations are being housed for extremely long amounts of time, some up to two to three years, basically because they can't afford to pay $50 in some cases to get out. Talk to us about your Second Chance project. Sure. Safe Streets and Second Chances is a research and foreign policy project with Right on Crime, where I have the privilege of working, uh, which is a, a criminal justice think tank, and Florida State University. And the idea is in Texas, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky to, to launch research in about 50 prisons in those four states, uh, starting with an individualized reentry plan as early in the, in the process as possible, and then following the population out to connect them to services. Uh, a lot of my day with Right on Crime, uh, who also has the pleasure of working with, with uh, pretrial as well, uh, is addressing those larger policy barriers. And these policy barriers run for everything, the gamut from healthcare access, uh, addiction treatment access, to things as pedestrian as securing an, a piece of identification to prove who you are. Uh, you'd be very surprised how few prisoners come out even with ID to show who they are nationally. In New Jersey, we had this problem when I, I ran a, something called the New Jersey Reentry Corporation, and uh, I got my old buddies together to build a pro bono network, and we restored over 400 driver's licenses in the three years I was there. That small intervention resulted in tremendous job opportunity in, in labor unions and in higher wage jobs than, than would have been uh, possible before. You have a website? Oh, yeah, safestreetsandsecondchances.com. Your website? Pretrial.org. So in, in your, you know, people see Amisha and John, they look like the American dream. But what you do has to be frustrating because you have to wonder sometimes, am I really making progress? I mean, you see pockets of differences that you make, but when you look at, the crime, because you know it's going to sooner or later end up where you are. When you see all this crime is taking place, and you look at TV, every, you turn on every TV, somebody got killed here, somebody was shot here, somebody was murdered here. It's all you see. There is really no good news. It's as if all these young people are criminals, and everybody commit crimes. If they're not committing crimes, they're committing terrorist attacks, they're blowing up synagogues. When you take all the emotions out of it, when you take the race out of it, and I don't even really care about the motives, what is it that we learn about people that we need to pay more attention to? One of the things that I believe that we learn is that people need help. And when I say help, I don't necessarily mean in terms of monetary assistance as much as I do um, 
in terms of looking at our nation and how it's progressed. We used to have a lot stronger social networks. The grandparents, the people down the street, everybody helped to raise your kids, basically. They knew where they were. They would call them out if they were doing something they weren't supposed to do. There was this strong network. There were teachers who acted as pseudo-parents as well, and they had the role and the responsibility to do so. Today, we see a lot of these networks have become extremely fragmented, and it has really hurt our society. There has never been a society across the globe where everything was singular in terms of the family. So it is very hard to fathom that. And it's very hard for other, um, other regions outside the U.S. to understand how we go about our lives without having a system of community around families and children specifically. Because we do our work, and I'm very thankful for the work that is done um, at Right on Crime as well. Um, sadly, in many cases, organizations like this came out of reactionary measures. These are instances where the person has already gone through the judicial process. They've already been arrested. They're already in the system. What we need to do is put more in investment in folks before they get there and understanding what are some of the causes, what are some of the reasons that they are making the decisions that they're making to actually walk through those prison doors. You know, and I was a, you know, as you know, I was a lawyer in prison, right? And, uh, you know, I, was, I learned that we all want the same things at our core. When I was in prison, virtually nobody asked me for money, but almost everybody asked me for a job when I got out. And, you know, and that, that blew my mind. And having conversations, those daily conversations on the yard, at mess, et cetera, in a cell, and you learn these men want to take care of their families. They do not know how, and, we, and they have to have the tools to do so, focused on public safety. Our small investment in their rehabilitation yields a great return on investment for public safety. And that's what Right on Crime is about. And I think that that's where we need to get as a society. You know, I, I just want to say this uh, in, in closing, because what we try to do is help people see themselves. And in seeing yourself, you can see others around you. And I thank my parents for this, but I also thank my spiritual side that I believe in something greater than myself. You know, I never base any of my decisions, any of my relationships, any of our hires, hiring on race, gender, someone's sexual preference. I never see that. It's never, there's never been an issue in any place where we have hundreds and hundreds of employees around the world. Um, and, and you know, it's amazing how it trickles down to people who grew up where everything is about race, uh, where if you're around black people, you're feel more safe and more trustworthy than you can confide in the same price around whites. That is just as untrue as anything ever could be. No one's race really determines to me whether they commit a crime or not, or whether they're good or whether they're bad. Now you take on certain habits and certain behaviors, certain traumatic situations that may have happened to you in your household, um, and these things influence the choices that you make. But not because you're white, not because you're black, not because you're woman. Individuals are individuals first. The thing that my father taught me, you, none of us are ever groups. I can never judge the person that went into the Jewish synagogue and just killed people for no reason at, at all. I cannot judge John by that person just because you think they may look alike. Because God gave us all different voices. There are billions of people on this planet and none of us have the same voice tone. It's easily recognizable no matter what. None of us have the same DNA. None of us have the same footprints or the same fingerprints. So there's no way we can ever believe that because someone is black and somebody's white, they have everything in common. We're not made that way. We must get to looking at people as individuals and one side does not fit all. Everybody doesn't require the same thing to lift 
the boats that we want to lift and to lift these tides. And until we start seeing each other as individuals, care about people, not because of their race, but because humanity is being destroyed. And the fact that anytime someone dies, they lose a child, a part of our humanity dies also. And until we get to that point, nothing will ever change and it will only become worse. I'm Armstrong Williams. Thank you so much for what you do. Join us for another edition of the Strongcast.